Bibles together at Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1. In the beginning, God made the heavens and the earth. The earth, earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And jumping down to verse 24. And God said, Let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things, and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds, and the livestock according to their kinds, and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God made man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply the earth, and fill the earth and and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heaven, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that's on the face of the earth, and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he'd made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning, the sixth day. Thanks, Lee. Uh, Good to keep your Bible open there at Genesis 1. Uh, We will be jumping around uh, our Bible's a fair bit this morning, but uh, most of the passages are going to be on the screen, um, except Genesis 1, so keep it open there for now. Uh, if you want to sort of follow along uh, visually as well as audibly, uh, there are some sermon outlines available on the welcome desk. There's the brief version for those who want to write lots of notes, and then there's the extended version for children and others uh, who want to do, uh, anyway, uh, you've got the picture. So uh, there's an outline there for you to use. And before we jump in... Uh, Let's pray together, shall we? Lord God, we thank you that we have this time now uh, to consider your word and what it is that you are saying to us. Lord God, we thank you that you have spoken uh, so clearly, so powerfully, uh, so personally through your word. And we thank you, Lord, that you, you point us to the Lord Jesus Christ and salvation that is found in him but also what it means to be a follower of Jesus in this world. So we pray, Lord, for the work of your Holy Spirit in my speaking, in our listening, and in our obedience. Uh, We ask this for Jesus' sake. Amen. 
And uh, just about every day, uh, I will spend a, a bit of time in the car, uh, car. And when I'm in the car by myself, I usually put on some sort of uh, news radio to listen to, as I'm sure that many of us do at different times, whether it's on the radio or on the TV. And every day, uh, I am confronted, as we all are, by a myriad of different news stories. Uh, things that are happening locally, uh, things in politics, uh, things that are happening globally, uh, things in other countries, and war, and starvation, and, and famine, uh, in refugees, in sport, uh, in arts, and culture. Every day we, we are faced with all of these different things that are going on in the world and life around us. And as these things come to us, they evoke a response within us, don't they? News that we listen to, that we consume, it asks from us a response. What do we think about what's going on? How do we engage with that? What shapes our response to all of these events going on in the world and in society around about us? Well, over the, the next few weeks, over this next month or so, we, we've got starting a new series uh, looking at some of these issues and how we, particularly as followers of Jesus, respond to them. Uh, over the next couple of weeks, we're going to look at the environment, uh, how we respond to the, to the issues of the environment that go on. And a couple of weeks after that, we're going to have a look at the issue of refugees and asylum seekers. Uh, we're going to do one more, and that's still open. Uh, at the moment, I've got a couple of ideas that I'm playing with, but nothing's settled yet. And if you want to have some input, uh, you are allowed to, uh, to suggest things as well. And what we're going to do is think about how we face them and how we respond to them as followers of Jesus. But today, before we get there, what we want to do is lay a foundation for that. To think about the framework or the lens through which we view all of these issues in society and in the wider world. And what we're doing here is we're really thinking about our world view. Now, what is a world view and do I have one? Well, as I read this week from somebody, world, world views are a little bit like belly buttons. Um, we've all got one, um, we just don't talk about them very often. We all have a world view. Um, it is our way of seeing, considering, interpreting all of the things that are going on around us in the world. All of our experiences, all of the information that comes to us, we view it and we sift it through a grid or a framework or a lens. That is our worldview. Worldview and worldview differences are the reason why one person thinks very little about the environment apart from sorting out their recycling, and another person gets involved in a march and protests against the use of coal. A difference in worldview is the reason why one person is quite happy to eat three meals of meat per day, and the next person is marching in on a farm to protest about the killing of animals. These things and our reaction to them are shaped by our worldview. And I want to suggest this morning that our worldview 
the way that we think about society and culture and our experiences needs to be shaped and sharpened by the Bible. Our worldview, in fact, needs to be God's view of the world. Now, can you chuck that first slide up there? Let me uh, read a couple of passages. The first one is from Colossians 2, 8 to 9. It says, See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the elemental spiritual forces of this world, rather than on Christ. What's it saying here? It says, just don't have a view of the world which is based on tradition or anything that is apart from Jesus. Romans chapter 12, verses 1 to 2. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what is God's will, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. You see, our view of the world should be God's view, shaped by him and shaped by his word. Now, this, of course, is the subject of entire units, courses, entire series of lectures, and I've already taken up four of the 30 minutes uh, that have been allotted to me. So we're going to do this in somewhat of a brief overview. An overview of the Bible, and I've called it a short history of just about everything. And we're going to look at the Bible and the story of God's dealings with the world in four different acts. Think of it as, as four acts in, in a play. We're going to look at creation, fall, uh, redemption or rescue, and finally consummation or completion. And yes, it will be like drinking from a fire hydrant. And yes, I am asking you to work really, really hard this morning. I know I don't do that every Sunday, but this one in particular. But I think it will be worth it. All right, let's have a look then, starting with creation. And we start then with Genesis chapter 1 and what Lee had read for us. Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. And what does it say? In the beginning, God. What does it say? What, what, what's happening here? In the beginning, you have an earth which is uh, without form and void, with darkness, but God is there. God exists before all of it. And in that, God creates. God creates the heavens and the earth. God creates absolutely everything that there is. Now, as Genesis 1 continues, it goes through uh, six different days uh, of creation. And if you notice that at the end of each one of them, there is a little bit of a refrain, a, a little bit of a conclusion. It says, uh, God looked at what he had created. Uh, sorry, where is it? Uh, he separated. Sorry, where am I up to? At the end of verse uh, not, uh, 10, uh, and God saw that it was good. At the end of each part of his creation, God looks and he sees that it's good. Now, this pattern, though, changes a little bit when we get to the sixth day, the final day of creation, and in effect, the pinnacle of creation. Because on that day, God creates men and women, man and woman, 
in his own image. And at the end of that day, he doesn't just say it was good. He says it was very good. What does God think of the world at this point? What's, what's the God view of the world? Well, his view is that it's good. In fact, that it's very good. And on the seventh day, God's, God steps back from his creating work and he rests and he enjoys his creation. His creation is a reflection of who he is, of his power, of his creativity, of his beauty, of his majesty. It is poured into his creation. Now, into that creation, God has placed people. He places Adam and Eve. And Adam and Eve are really given two tasks within that creation. The first one is that God gives them dominion. If you have a look there, it's down there in verse 26. In other words, that it uses there is he tells them to be fruitful. He tells them to multiply. He tells them to fill the earth. And he tells them to subdue it. For Adam and Eve, their, the world is their oyster. God has given this incredible creation, and he says, reign over it, fill it, subdue it. Now, but this is not, though, destructive ruling and reigning. Uh, in chapter 2, verse 15, he describes it later on as working it and keeping it. It's this idea that they are to bring the best, the most, the very uh, best out of the creation that God has made. You see, at this point, uh, the world is not perfect. Now, now, I know that's a bit of a radical statement, but, but hear me out. It's very good, but it's not perfect because it's not yet complete. God creates, and then he creates people in his image, and he says, you keep creating. Not out of nothing, not like God creates out of nothing, but you, you keep recreating in this world. And that's more than just gardening. That's more than just what they do with the plants and the animals. It's art. It's culture. It's science. It, it's the full gamut of human creativity that they are to explore with this world that God has given them. And the second thing that God tells them to do with the creation is he tells them to enjoy it. He, he says, I've, I've given you every plant to eat and enjoy it. And they eat and fruit never tasted so good because it was given to them by God. He gives them one another for enjoyment as well, for companionship, for togetherness. He tells them to enjoy each other. This is where the Bible begins. This is where our view, because it's God's view, of the world begins. There is a God who is before everything else. He creates everything out of nothing. And he creates it very good. He enjoys it. It's his world. 
And in it, he has placed us to reign over it, to enjoy it, to make the most of it. Now, if this is where the Bible story finished, that would be wonderful, wouldn't it? I mean, we could sing a song, have coffee and cake and go home uh, and we'd all be done for the day. Um, But we know that this is just the beginning. Because after Genesis 2 comes Genesis chapter 3. And this is where it becomes a little bit more difficult. Because what happens in Genesis chapter 3 is that Adam and Eve take this enormous blessing and freedom that God has given them. And they use it for their own glory rather than for God's glory. And in chapter 3, after they've eaten the fruit, um, God gets the main three players involved in the drama, uh, Adam and Eve and the serpent together. Uh, And he spells out the consequences for their disobedience. Uh, To the serpent, uh, he announces that there will be enmity or a war uh, between the serpent and the offspring of the woman. Uh, There is no longer just good in the world. There is also sin and evil. There are things of God and there are things that are not of God. And all of creation and all people are going to be caught up in that tension from then on. He then addresses the woman. And he tells her that childbirth, Uh, That wonderful act that was part of the mandate to fill the earth is now going to be involving great and immense pain and anguish. Not only that, but her relationship with Adam, uh, the very relationship that was for companionship and support, is now going to be filled with bad authority. And to Adam, well, his work that God had given him uh, to develop, to make the most of, to reign over the world, is now going to be filled with heartache and pain and toil. It won't just happen. And for both of them, they will die. To make matters worse, they are taken out of the garden and the way back is barred. They do not live in relationship with each other, with the creation, or with the creator as they did anymore. All those three relationships are now incredibly distorted. Creation itself is groaning under the weight of sin. People are themselves distant from God, and their relationships are broken. The question we want to ask now, after this fall, is what does God think of his world now? What's the God view of a fallen and broken creation? I think that's an important question. And in fact, the answer to that one is critical for the way that we view the world and the way that we interact with it. I want to answer that question in three ways which are deeply connected. The first one is this. The world 
still belongs to God. The world is still his. Now, it might be tempting to think that from that point on, God wrote the world off. He basically said, well, this is destroyed. This is, this is, this is, this is heading bad. I'm just going to write it off and leave it alone. And maybe I'll save a few people out of it for something different or something better. A couple of verses I'm going to chuck up there. The first one from Psalm 24, verses 1 and 2. What does it say? The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the waters, around the rivers. When's this psalm written? Before or after the fall? It's afterwards, isn't it? Our world still belongs to God. Psalm 8. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? You have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the work of your hands. You have put all things under his feet. Has anything changed about God's view of the world? Well, it's, still, it's, a, it's a world that is broken. It is a world of, where there is rebellion, but it still belongs to God. God still loves his world. He still cares for his world. He still cares for every single part of his creation. It's a world that's fallen, but it's still a world that reflects the beauty, the power, the majesty, the divinity of God. We can't look at the world and think of it as a place that is completely devoid of God. The world belongs to God and everything in it. Secondly, not only does it belong to him, but he is still sovereign over the whole world. A couple of verses uh, going up there. Psalm 115, verse 3. Our God is in the heavens. He does what he pleases. Daniel chapter 4, verse 35. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can say to his hand, can say his hand, or say to him, what have you done? What's the picture here? The world belongs to God, and God is still in charge. He's still sovereign. There's no one like him. There's no rival to God in the world. He's sovereign because he's unique. He's God. He's sovereign because he's created everything. He's sovereign because he reigns and rules over every single part of it. He's sovereign because he sustains it. You see, the, the world is not divided now into two parts. A part where God is in charge and a part where he is not. The world is, is not running free, out of control, and outside the power and the reign and the rule of God. He is still sovereign over every single bit of it. It's God's world. He's sovereign over it. And thirdly and finally, he's working for its restoration. 
because it's his world and because he loves it and because he reigns supreme over it. He is working for the restoration of all that he has made. And this is really the third act in the drama that we're looking at. The seeds for this were already laid in Genesis chapter 3 when, when sin came. God promises that one day the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent. And in Genesis chapter 12, God spells out how that's going to happen. He calls one man, Abram, and he says to him, I'm going to make your name great. I'm going to make your offspring great. I'm going to make you a great nation. And through you, I will bring blessing to the whole world. God's restoration project starts with that one man. And from that one man comes a nation. And God's promise is that through that nation, he will restore, he will bless the whole world. Now, this theme really drives the whole of the Old Testament. In fact, it probably drives the whole, whole of the Bible. God working out that plan through Abraham and his descendants. But sometimes when we read the Old Testament, it seems like it's struggling to get off the ground, doesn't it? It, it really seems like it's struggling to become a reality. And in fact, as it becomes uh, less and less likely through this nation... Uh, God begins to show what he's ultimately going to do. Uh, Isaiah chapter 42, verse 5. Uh, it should be up there. Go to the, yeah, go to the next one. Cool. Thus says the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. Notice how it, how it pictures God. God who's the one who's created everything, who's given breath to everyone. Look at what he says. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light to the nations, to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison those who sit in darkness. God promises that through this people that he's chosen, he will in fact draw all nations, all people, to himself. And then we have possibly what is the most well known passage of the whole Bible John chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. What does God think of the world? He loves it. He loves it so much that Jesus comes. Not to condemn, but to save. Not to write it off, but to restore it all back to God. Can you see how incredibly gracious God is to a fallen and broken world? Can you see how greatly he loves the world, his world, that he would send his only son 
a son that would come and would ultimately die. Not a meaningless death at all, but a death where he would take the curse of sin. He would take the very sin of his people, the punishment that we deserve. He would die to remove the right anger of God at sin by taking it on himself so that broken and fallen people could be saved, so that a broken and fallen world could be restored. And this Jesus, not only does he die, but he is raised again. And in being raised from the dead, he ushers in a new dawn, a a new era for God's restoring project on the earth and in all of creation. His kingdom comes in power as as he sends the Holy Spirit into the world, as he sends it into the lives of the people who belong to him. He empowers them by his spirit to be what Jesus commanded them to be, salt and light. Salt that preserves, light that exposes. He empowers them to to make disciples of all the nations, other people who come to commit their lives to living for and living under this King Jesus. Incredibly and powerfully, through Jesus, through the sending of the Holy Spirit, life by life, relationship by relationship, sin by sin, he works to restore a fallen and broken world back to himself. That's, of course, where we are now. That's the work that God is doing in and each and each of every one of us and through each and every one of us through his people scattered across the globe, he is powerfully restoring his creation back to himself. And he will continue to do this. He will continue to work until in one final powerful scene, Jesus will return and that work will be completed utterly and finally. Let's turn to Revelation chapter 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for a husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. And he will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall be there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. All that is wrong and distorted has been incredibly and powerfully wiped away. Revelation 21 and 22 goes on to give three powerful pictures 
first one starts there with a, with a city that comes out of heaven to earth. It's a, it's a city that is beautiful, it's, it's adorned, it's, it's, it's perfect in its dimensions and its fortresses. It contains everything that is beautiful and brilliant. And God says, this is my church, my bride. This is broken, fallen people now wonderfully and perfectly restored as they were created to be. In the second scene, it, it describes a, a city without a temple. It doesn't need a temple because God lives once more with his people. He's in their presence. There's, there's no need for a mediator or a place to go. That great fracture that occurred in Genesis 3 between God and people is done away with once and for all. People live in restored relationship. And finally, in the third scene in chapter 2, there's another garden. The perfect garden. And there's a river running through it. And there's trees that have great fruit. And there's a tree that's missing. And the world has been healed. And in these three incredible scenes, the three great curses, sin in people, a fractured relationship with God, and a, a groaning creation is now wonderfully and perfectly restored. Throughout all of these four acts of the great drama of history, there is one thing which comes through clear over and over again. This world belongs to God. He put his mark of ownership on it when he created it. And he has never stopped owning it, reigning over it, loving it, and he's never stopped restoring it. Yes, the world, the creation, people, the image of God in people has been distorted because of sin. There is not one thing which is unaffected by the consequences of the sin and curse. Our lives, our relationships, creation, but so too with arts and sport and science and medicine and government. But it's still his world. Every single part of it. This is the filter or the framework through which you and I have got to keep viewing the world and everything that goes on around about us. This is the lens by which we are to understand and think about the world and to consider our place in it. God is not against culture. He's not against the world. We are not the Amish. We don't withdraw completely from society and culture because we think that God has written it off. We don't hunker down 
hiding from the world and the issues around about us, waiting for the days of sin and evil to pass because it is God's world and he's restoring it. And he's restoring it through his people. We don't make a distinction between what is sacred, what belongs to God, and what is secular, what belongs to someone or something else. Every single part of it belongs to God. That's, that's for our lives. It's not like we have some, some God bits, like going to church and doing our devotions and maybe our family life, and then other bits like playing sport or enjoying movies and music or, or going to school. God is part of all of it. All of it is sacred. All of it belongs to him. And every single part of it, our world, our lives, is to be brought under the lordship of Jesus Christ. Every single part of it is to be renewed and transformed for his glory. And we do so in the great hope, in the great anticipation, that that's what God himself is doing. In each and every one of us, and in the world which he has loved from the beginning, a world which he will finally restore when Jesus returns. Let's pray to him, shall we? Look, God, so often uh, we feel like our world is kind of hopeless. Uh, we feel like it's uh, so devoid of you uh, and so distant from you and your work. Uh, Lord God, we pray that you would help us to see the world as you see it. Help us to remember, Lord, that it's your world, created by you, sustained by you, rolled over by you. And help us to remember, Lord, that this is the world that you love, that Jesus died to restore, and that you are at work in through us even today. Lord God, we don't want to be taken captive by hollow and deceptive thoughts. Lord God, we want thoughts that are after your thoughts. Uh, please shape, Lord God, our view of the world of life uh, through your word so that our lives might in every part bring glory to you. We ask this for Jesus' sake. Amen.